My name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android App Store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. Uh, good morning, my name is Herrick. I'm one of the pastors here of Restored Temecula. And uh, this morning, I'm going to continue in our series called The King and His Kingdom. I've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in the Beatitudes right now. Very, very famous teaching. But uh, before I do that, I want to share with you guys an announcement, an important announcement that affects this summer. And before I do uh, kind of share the specifics, I thought it'd be helpful to talk a little bit about, kind of like give some biblical, a biblical basis for what, we're, what I'm going to be sharing. When you read Genesis, the story of creation, uh, God made everything. He's the source of life. And, and then he does it, and, you know, there's uh, a period of time he does it in, and then he's, it says, on the seventh day, he rested. He rested. And then uh, one of the things that we see over and over again is this idea of rest being played out over and over so you will see it in, in the people of God. There's actually a, a day called the Sabbath. So every, every week, there's a 24-hour period where the people rested from their work. And this was a, this was a people who, they were dependent on the, their crops and livestock, hands-on work. Any farmers in the room? We know. How hands-on is that work? Good. I like that. That's, a, that's an honest answer. Yeah, so, you know, these are typewriter hands. Their hands would have been calloused. They would have been, these are people that had dirt in their nails. They were working the ground. And they were told, take a break every week and remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who made us at all. It's not on your shoulders. You're not your provider. The Lord is. And this is part of the people's rhythms. We even see that the land itself was actually, that God was like, give the land a break. Rest. So you people are dependent on livestock and cattle. Take a break. Every seven years. So what's my point in saying all this? It really does seem like this idea of taking strategic breaks is built into the fabric of creation and God's people. All that said, restore Temecula. Here we are. This church, if you're new, it was planted uh, four, four, four to five years ago. Depending on when you started, we had our first public gathering, May 2018, at Margarita Middle. Very special day. I remember it really well. My wife, Heather, and I moved up here to help plant this church. And this church was actually birthed out of a church. That was birthed out of a church. Uh, restored, restored Temecula is one of the restored family of churches. And there's, there's churches in San Diego and South Bay and Uptown. There's a church in Los Angeles and there's a church here. And there's a beautiful, long story about all of that, which I'm, I'm not going to get into all the details right now. But in order for this church to exist, there's been major sacrifices made 
Some of you already know, and some of you guys have communicated this feeling of being uh, touched by the reality that people who didn't know anybody in this room, or hardly anybody in this room, together raised $100,000 to help start this church, to, to provide what was necessary to start this church. That was people who don't necessarily know you, but love you. And they were making a sacrifice. Hello. Okay, back in here. Our kids' main is lit. Whatever. It's hopping. The people that love this church that have made significant sacrifices. There are people in this room that moved up here to help start this church. You know who you are. And we're so grateful. Lots of people have made sacrifices. I don't think there's a unique sacrifice that one family has made, and that's the Logues. Tom, Ebony, Millie, and Vivi and their girls. A significant sacrifice that has been made. They relocated here from San Diego, from, from Restored South Bay. Uh, Tom's the lead planter and pastor. Tom has led this church and, and, and this elder team and this staff through crucial foundation-laying years that require the sort of focus that parents give growing kids. Because a church is like, like when we plant churches, it's sort of like birthing, like birthing new life, like birthing a church. Over four years, the Logues have planted a handful of gospel communities. Those are groups that follow Jesus together, that have weathered the storm of COVID, and lives are being changed in those gospel communities. There's a reality of preaching, teaching, training, casting vision, leading a staff team, creating structure, being a friend, which being a friend to me takes, takes some, some serious energy and effort. There's the reality of mentoring, of investing, of shepherding, of being there in crisis, and the last two years have been a crisis. I was going to use, never mind. The last two years have been a crisis. And, but there's this reality that over the course of time, the Logues have invited people into a God adventure. But this is like giving birth, like raising children. Like create, it's creating a family culture in which everybody can thrive. Everybody can experience the love of Jesus. Everybody can grow as disciples. It's good, but it's a lot of work. This is not the first church plant they've been a part of. They were a part of Restored South Bay. Tom and Ebony were in eldership there. Uh, prior to Temecula, they helped plant Restored South Bay, which is now a thriving and, may I say, super fun church down in Chula Vista. They helped provide stability to South Bay in a really tender moment in its development. South Bay went through a plant. They were planting, and they also went through crisis. There was significant loss. There was death and all that stuff, and the, the logs were there and stepped in to help Danny and Monique, the leaders of that church, uh, during that time. But before South Bay, there was Uptown. Restored Uptown, uh, the Logues helped to birth that church, too. That's a church that's changed my life. Without Uptown, I'm not here. Uh, I shudder to think where I'd be uh, in some ways. That's my story, though. That's a separate thing. But they sold their home in this valley, this is where they were from, to move to urban North Park to proclaim Jesus to a bunch of hipsters. I wasn't hit, but I was there. <laughs> and they did so at a great personal cost. There's a beautiful church community in San Diego, and the Logues were instrumental in birthing that community. Before Uptown, there were many years on staff at another church investing in the lives of disciples. They've served musically in prayer and preaching and teaching and laying foundations, raising up leaders, empowering people to use their gifts. Many of us have experienced that here and have come alongside countless people to help them experience the love of Jesus. There's a lot of good fruit. In total, 
That's 16 years of ministry that have been full. One thing's been missing, though. So today, I'm really excited to announce that we're working with the Restored Family of Churches to give the Logs a strategic break this summer, a sabbatical. We got through it. You guys don't know this, but last time that we had this planned, a little something happened called COVID. And uh, so I was sitting on this announcement back then on the day when Disneyland shut down and the whole world shut down. So this was, this is two years in the making, more than two years in the making. So what's a sabbatical and why it's on the logs on one? A sabbatical is a strategic break to rest to replenish and then re-enter. The Logs have spent themselves to see others flourish, to see this community flourish, not just this one, South Bay, Uptown, other communities as well. So we're going to give them time to rest, to be with Jesus and each other without the demands of ministry for a time so that they can come back even stronger than ever. I want to be really clear because as we've been thinking about this, as I've been reading about it, it's kind of wild like how... The sabbatical is sometimes used as a cover for, like, there's real problems, so we're going to send someone on a sabbatical. Kind of like sending your dog to the farm type of thing at times. <laughs> so to be very clear, we're not sending the loaves to the farm. <laughs> Tom and Emily will not be sleeping with the fishes for any, uh, for any uh, Godfather fans in the room. Okay. This is why I take notes to, like, to stay on track. Um, okay, so this is not in response to sin or failure. It just, it's not. This is preventative work. Ministry is grueling. It's demanding. You get, the, you get a front row seat into what's beautiful in people's lives, and also you get a front row seat into what's really broken in people's lives. It takes a toll. And over the last two years, I don't know if you know this, it's been hard. It's been uniquely difficult. So this strategic break is going to give the Logs a chance to do some deep soul work after really, really good, fruitful ministry and a lot of hard times as well. Also, just want to, the whole farm thing, um, this is not in response to conflict or scandal. Just putting that out there because sometimes sabbatical, you know, is used as a blanket for that. That's not what's going on here. This is a, a love and long-term focus thing. Uh, and the family of churches restored uptown restored Los Angeles, restored South Bay. Everybody's helping with this. Everybody's involved. So what is this sabbatical going to look like? The the Logs will take a step back for three months between June and September. So kind of like first half of June to the first half of September. Why three months? Well, research and experts have told us that that's really like, that's how long it takes. It takes a while to even begin to become aware of how you operate internally when that work isn't when the work is on pause. Sabbaticals are ordinarily between one and six months, one to six months, so this is pretty standard. It's kind of like right in the middle. During those three months, the logs will not be, this is the hard part, they will not be at Senate gatherings, which, so a, a bit of a heartbreaker for you guys and for, for me. We will not see them for those three months uh, and will not be talking ministry, so that's really important. No talking shop for those three months with them. Um, but this is a step back, it's not a setback. Like the idea is for them to come back replenished, envisioned, healthier than ever before, and that's good for them, but it's also good for you. It's good for, for, for me, it's good for our staff, it's good for our eldership, it's good for everybody, for our GC leaders. 
So what will the Logs be doing? Uh, they'll be spending time together. They'll be enjoying time away. But it's not a vacation. It's, it's a guided experience where they're going to be working on deep soul stuff. They're going to be working with uh, Dr. Wes Beavis, who's a former pastor. He's a multi-generational pastor. He's a clinical psychologist. Yes, his last name is Beavis. We can all laugh and if you, if you were in the 90s. Okay. Dr. Wes. Tom's been meeting with Dr. West for a while, and Dr. West also sees other people in our family of churches. So his specialty is pastoral burnout, which is pretty remarkable that somebody who's a former pastor has actually just given their life to help people walk through, just to make sure that they're healthy and well. And so, they're going to get good soul care. What will we be doing? That's a good question. We're working on that. I'm just kidding. We have a, we're, going to, we're going to be, we're excited about this. We're going to be doing a summer through the Psalms. So we're going we're gonna to have like a summer series that we're going to work through together. Uh, I'll be preaching more, which for some of you are like, yes. Some of you are like, can't wait till September. I'll be preaching more, but it won't just be me. There's actually going to be other pastors from the Restored Family of Churches that are going to be coming in, which is great. So you're going to hear other voices. You're going to hear from Andy Rogers from Uptown. You're going to hear from Brad Syrian from Los Angeles. You're going to hear from Danny Kimlot from South Bay. So there's going to be different people helping to cover the pulpit. And then I'll be overseeing our Sunday gatherings and our staff team and all that. So, why now? Well, we wanted to do this two years ago. But then, COVID. So really, like, one of the things that I just want to quickly mention is that it was sort of like, if you can imagine a tour of duty, like a long, grueling tour of duty. And you get to the end of it, and, you've been, and you're in command, and you've been overseeing people, and it's like, ah, oh, like, I'm going home. I'm going to take a break. And then at the end of this long tour of duty, then you're like, actually, we're going to send you to, the, to another front in the war that's more intense than anything you've ever experienced. I think that's the best analogy I've, I've come up with. It's like what the Logs went through. Because we were about to announce this thing March 2020, if you can believe the timing on that. And then it was like, okay, not only we're we not giving you a strategic break, but get ready because the world's going to fall apart. But they're good soldiers. Like, they... They continued to love this church, and now we're here. And we're, we made it. We've survived. And I think we're growing, and it's exciting. So that's, that's why, why now. We wanted it two years ago, but we're doing it now. Um, just so you guys know a little bit of the kind of vision, like we want to do this every seven years for every pastor in the family of churches. So we're just getting this online now. And we wish we could have done this sooner for them, honestly, but we're just, we're a little bit behind the eight ball, but we want to do this now. We want to do this every seven years starting now. The growing body of research on pastoral burnout is bleak, and it's really bad. It's been made worse because of the pandemic. Now, the good news is that even though the stats are troubling, it's shining a light on the importance of pastoral care. Sabbaticals are not a silver bullet for anybody, but they are an invaluable tool that we can use. It's a dangerous calling. There's a whole book called Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. Just so you guys know, I went to pastor school back in 2015, and I was in a, it's a fairly small school. I think there might have been like 20 of us. We had eight different speakers who, would, who came in every month to invest in us. And we would get together um, at a church up in, in Washington State. And of those 20 or so pastors and of the eight teachers, I think 20 to 25% of them are no longer in ministry. And that was six or seven years ago. They're just not there anymore. And so, again, what we're talking about, there's no sin or conflict, so this is preventative work, but the reality is that pastoral ministry is dangerous. 
And it, there's, there's just another level of care that's required in order to be healthy and well. So with that said, it's a three-month investment in the Logs that I think is going to pay dividends for years as they give themselves over to rest, to replenishment, and to reentry. I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions that you guys have. Um, Tom and Eb will be kind of like available to talk with you guys over the course of the coming weeks, especially if you're a gospel community. More information on that will be coming your way. Um, but yeah, you want to support them and pray. You can imagine what it's like to pause, to take a strategic break. It's actually not easy. It's not easy when you've planted this church to then step away. A lot of things are going to be hard about that. So prayer is the number one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm asking pastorally, like join me in praying for them over the course of the summer, that God would do like a deep soul work. Um, also, I've had people, I've had the question asked to me like, well, what does it look like to support them financially? And I just want to put this out there. It's not expected or required. There's no expectation of it. I'm not even bringing this up because I want this to be on your radar. I'm just bringing it up because people have asked. Um, if, you, if that's something you really desire to do, that's totally great. Just write them a check. That's it. But you don't need to do that. That's not expected. Make sense? I'm saying it because people have asked. Make sense? Literally, not, I'm not trying to inception this into your minds. I see some faces over there. This isn't a money thing. I'm just literally answering questions for people that I anticipate people will have because they've already come up. So, with that said, let's dive into today's text. So, if you have a Bible, grab your Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. If you have questions about the, the sabbatical, please let me know. Let us know. I'll be happy to answer them for you. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. It should be up on the screen here in a moment. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This is the famous Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the most famous, well-known, effective message sermon that's ever been preached by Jesus Christ himself. So here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he being Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's assuming the position of a rabbi who's ready to teach. His disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, children of the living God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So this is, some, this is not the way we typically think of things. You're blessed if you're persecuted. You're blessed if life is hard because you follow Jesus. Verse 11, you are, this is the one that just gets me every time. You are blessed when they insult you. What do you do with that? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil, evil about, against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Today's verse is going to be verse 5. 
Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Okay, I'm going to start this morning off with a question. This is interactive, so you can talk. Actually, it would be better if you didn't. Uh, who, or what does it mean to be humble in today's society? What does it mean to be humble in today's society? So this isn't necessarily like what, what you think humility means. What do you think society thinks it means? What does society mean when they say someone, so-and-so is humble? There are no bad qu- answers, by the way. Sorry, what? A pushover. Okay. A pushover. What else? They don't, they, they don't admit how great they are. Yes. Mm-hmm. A generous person. Yes. Yes. A generous person. A pushover. Um, Ron Burgundy. What else? What else we got? Anything else? They don't accept compliments. Oh. Okay. Great. So a pushover, or you push back when somebody tries to say something nice about you. Weak. Weak. Good. All right. Anything else? This is good. Okay. Cool. Um, so when I think of what society means. When, they, when people say so-and-so is humble, I immediately think of one person, one dude, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Some of you guys know, you know exactly what I'm saying. Some of you guys are like, who is Keanu? Cool. Wherever you're at, you're welcome here today. <laughs> Keanu Reeves is, if you're a millennial, maybe like a slightly older millennial, I don't know, are, am I a millennial? I don't know what I am. If you were in your 30s, 30 to 40-something, uh, you're going to instinctively know who Keanu Reeves is. He was, he was Neo from The Matrix. So one of the great movies of all time. I wish I had more time to unpack it just for fun because it's just a great, great story. Um, Keanu Reeves was also in other movies. He was in Speed, the classic, legendary Speed 1 and 2. Launched a Tyner Bloke's career. <clears throat> humble dude, just stepping out of the way for other people. But Keanu Reeves, effectively, one of the things that he's known for now, um, he was also in, uh, gosh, what was that movie? It doesn't matter. Bill and Ted's, thank you. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Bunch of stuff, right? John Wick, uh, for any of the, I've never seen those. Point Break, oh yes. Outstanding. Wow. Keanu. If you don't know who he is, now you know. Uh, so basically, Keanu's becoming a legend in, on the internet because he does really unexpected things. Like, he, 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 own, he dresses modestly, he owns a modest car, I think he takes the subway to places. Um, this, is, this was one that seemed to like really gather a lot of, of eyeball, get a lot of eyeballs on him in the entertainment world. He, like, dates women his age. He's, he's 55 or whatever. People are like, look at his girlfriend. She's 55, you know? People just lose their minds. They can't believe it. Keanu, so humble. 
So, I, so that's what I think of. So just gave you like a window into my inner world. Um, so the humble, here's my definition of it. You guys ready for this? The humble are those who don't think or act like they're a big deal. Even if they are one. Keanu. Right? I think that's, that's society's understanding of, of humility. Would you guys more or less agree with that? Yeah, yeah more or less? Okay, cool. Great. Because if you didn't, that would really mess up my notes. And I don't know where to go from here. So that's kind of the society's understanding of humility. What's the Bible's understanding of humility? What does the scripture actually say about this? What does it look like to be a humble person? Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth, right? Or the land. What does that mean? So I have two, two questions that I'm going to answer. We're going to, we're going to work on this together. Two questions. Question number one, who are the humble? Question number two, what is their inheritance? Who are the humble? What's their inheritance? You guys ready? Let's go. Who are the humble? Okay. Uh, commentators consistently, I, I read a bunch of different commentators on this passage specifically. As you might imagine, it's Jesus' most famous teaching. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt on these passages. Uh, and one of the things that the commentators bring up time and time and time again is that in order to understand this particular part of Scripture, you have to understand other parts of Scripture too, which is just basically generally the case. Uh, Jesus isn't just making stuff up as he goes. He's, he has a biblical imagination. His mind is saturated with the story of the Old Testament. And so he's keying in on, among other things, Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read out of Psalm 37 for you guys, and we're going to see some, some, hyper, some connections here, and then we're going to unpack them a little bit. What does it mean to be humble? The Bible's definition of humility. Let's read out of Psalm 37, starting in verse 1. See, so do we have those verses? Yes. Awesome. Okay. So Psalm 37. You guys ready for this? Okay. Here we go. Number one, do not be agitated by evildoers. This is, gonna, this is God's instruction for the humble. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Don't envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and will wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. Verse 4. Take deli- These are very famous words. If you've been in the church for a while, you're going to know these words. If you haven't been in the church for a while, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. You're going to hear this eventually. Verse 4. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5. It's good to remember, every verse of Scripture has a context, right? That's important. What does that mean? Read around it. Verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act, making your righteousness shine like the dawn, your justice like the noonday. Verse 7. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Don't be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. It feels like an emotionally healthy church conversation, right? Uh, Don't be, for evildoers will be destroyed. Those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. There it is. Inherit the land. For a little while, and a, a little while, and the wicked person will be no more. And though you look for him, he will not be there. In verse 11, the last one. But the, 
Listen to this. The humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Okay? Trust God. Want what he wants. I want to give you guys a definition. So I just read a bunch of scripture. I want to give you guys a definition of humility based on this passage and various others that I think is super helpful. Because I'm, I'm like a dictionary guy. I'm like, give me, a, give, me, give me a definition. Give me a definition. Find me a dictionary. And it, humility was surprisingly hard to define, even biblically. But I found, I found a fantastic dictionary. It's a dictionary of biblical theology with some fantastic scholarship. And this is the quote. You guys ready for this? Humility primarily refers to submission to God. Submission is the appropriate attitude before the divine majesty. God is amazing. Trust him. And is a necessary condition for accepting his grace. Even God himself is willing to stoop low to save the humble. In the New Testament, which is where we are now, humility is taught by both example, so Jesus' life tells us what teaches us what humility is like, his incarnation, the fact that he came to earth and lived a perfect life. He washed his disciples' feet, he served people, and then his passion, he died for others. So there's example and word. Grace is given only to the humble. Let me say that again. Grace is given only to the humble. This is a part of the definition of humility. Grace is given to the humble. In my own life and story, I have gotten a taste of this um, in, in some interesting ways. I, I've told my story before. I'll just keep it really brief. But um, I, I didn't grow up in a church like this. Um, I kind of grew up in a highly liturgical church. It was sort of like I grew up Catholic. And there's some people who really love Jesus in, in the Catholic church, just like any other church. There's some people like me who are like... I don't even know what we're talking about half the time. I just had to show up because my parents wanted me to be there. And, that, and I had to do a lot of things. I had, to, I had to memorize a lot of kneeling and standing and humming and Benedictine-type you know, chants and different things like that. That felt pretty foreign to me. So I never really connected the dots between who Jesus is and my own life until I got to college. And then things started to change. So as a teenager... In my life, I met some people, some fascinating human beings when I was a freshman in college, and what they started to do, because they were there as disciples who wanted to make disciples, is they started telling me about Jesus. That's why they went to college, believe it or not. There's a degree, obviously, they went for that too, but they went primarily as missionaries, as people who were sent to make disciples. That changed my life. I started hearing about Jesus in a way that started to make sense to me. It was no longer kind of like just this thing that we do on Sundays and it's, I do it to appease my parents. It actually became something that I felt for the first time like God was inviting me personally to trust and follow him in, in undeniable ways. So what happened? When that call came and people start telling me about Jesus and they started inviting me to follow him, a lot of stuff came out. 
that I didn't even know was there. The primary one was that I was deathly afraid of what would happen if I did. Meaning, I'm 18, 19 years old. I'm, I'm like, I have some friends in college. I'm starting to feel like I have a place to belong. I'm starting to feel that I actually have people in my life that like me and that I can kind of rely on. And then if I, I come out, you know, and I'm like, I'm a Christian, what might happen to those relationships? I might lose them. Or as a minimum, they might go into like, this could be even worse. They go into that weird category of like, oh, he's a Christian now. We're not going to cut him off, but man, this guy. And I just couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with what it went for my relationships, um, both my friendships and romantic relationships that I was in, involved in. And so it, came, it got to the point where it was clear, like, I can't serve my agenda and God's agenda for my life. And so I did what any aspiring pastor, I got to the point where it was very clear, like a fork in the road moment. I did what any aspiring pastor would do. I ran far, far away into my plans, my desires, my way. That's where I went. And I've often thought about that time with like just pain in my heart, and there's a reason why. It's hard to, to imagine what it would be like if I had five more years of walking with Jesus under my belt that I don't, and I've, I've accepted that. But now, I'm kind of moving into a space where as I think about my story, I kind of see it as like God's kindness in a way because I was crystal clear on where I was at with him. There was no like in or out, like am I in, am I out? It's like I'm just out. I'm gone. This is not what I want. So here's, here's what I'm saying. If you're taking notes, this is my first point to which I am a counterexample. I just gave myself as a counterexample. So who are the humble? The humble are those who set aside their agenda and pursue God's. The humble are those who set aside their agenda to pursue God's. It's the, the person in Psalm 37 who trusts God and increasingly desires what he desires. I did the opposite. God came to me with his invitation to experience eternal life, and I was like, no thank you. I'm going to run. For a season, I tried to kind of do both my agenda, his agenda. It just didn't work out. So here's what's interesting. I've thought about this, right? The humble set aside their agenda to pursue God's. And I think that's a good definition. But I also think it can be misconstrued or misunderstood. Sometimes it's possible to serve God's agenda on paper, but serve our own in practice. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes it's possible to serve God's agenda on paper, but our own in practice. What do I mean by that? Well, it's possible to avoid big sins, if you will. I'm using air quotes for those of you on the podcast. Air quotes. Big sins while being enslaved to deep sin. It's possible to avoid big sins while being enslaved to the, the deep sins. Well, what does that mean? The rest of the sermon on that. I'll give you two examples quick. These are for free. Anger. Anger. Don't, so the Ten Commandments, do not murder, right? What does Jesus do with that in the Sermon on the Mount? Is he just like, yeah, don't murder and you're good? He says, 
cool, you didn't murder anybody. But if you are angry with people, if you nurse grudges to the point of bitterness, you're, you're committing murder in your heart. So outwardly, it can look like I'm serving God's agenda, but inwardly, whose agenda am I really serving? Anger, lust. You can avoid adultery. You can avoid sleeping with someone else's spouse. But you can indulge in all sorts of mental fantasies. And you can do that here. I can outwardly be serving God's agenda, but inwardly serving my own. So there's kind of three components to this as I, as I chewed on it, as I thought it through. Serving God's agenda includes serving God's agenda in principle. I'm saying it. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a servant of, of, of God in Christ. Principle. Then there's your practice. This is what I'm doing outwardly. Or you could even call it like public, my public life. And then there's the private life. And serving God's agenda includes all three of those. And as those three become one, we become whole people. Where there aren't distinctions and divisions between the, two, between the three. Is this making sense to you? Okay. So I just got to ask the question. What's on your agenda? What's on your agenda? In principle, what you say in practice or in public, like what you do outwardly, and in private, the things that only you see, the things that only you and God see, your thought life. The humble are those who set aside their agenda in principle, in practice, and in private to serve God's agenda in principle, in practice, and in private. That's what it means to be humble. Okay. What is the inheritance of the humble? What is the inheritance of the humble? Um, there was this guy who lived a long time ago. His name was Abram. You may have heard of him. If you haven't heard of him, I'm so glad that you're here. This is great. Um, he's actually one of the most famous people that's ever lived. The three great uh, monotheistic faiths, if you will, the three like most most um, broadly embraced monotheistic faiths in the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, all three point to Abraham as their spiritual father. Judaism through Isaac, Abraham had children, Isaac, um, Islam through um, another one of his kids, and then Christianity, we'll get to that. What made Abraham special? What made him special? Nothing. We weren't expecting that, were you? Nothing. In fact, if you read his story, there are things that make him special. Um, oh, that's special, Abraham, what you just did right there. So God made these, he picks out this kind of no-name guy, Abraham, Abram, and he makes the most outlandish, extravagant promises ever uttered in the history of the world to that point. He tells Abram, I'm going to give you a land and a people. And, and through this people, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. Now imagine if you're sitting up, you wake up on a Saturday morning, daylight savings, you're groggy, you're tired, your alarm didn't go off this morning, 
that morning, this is, a, this is a thought experiment, and you wake up and you think that God came in some form, possibly in, in, as a, in a human appearance, and told you, I'm going to save the world through you, Kylo. And you, what, how, what, would you, how, what would your response be like? How would you respond to that? What's that? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, okay, man, what's in this coffee? Like, we're going to switch whatever this is. No more of that. Like, it, it, there would be like a, a sense of like disbelief. And guess what? Abraham disbelieved a lot. He did. He didn't believe often. And so what ends up happening is God makes these incredible promises, a land and a people that's going to ultimately impact the entire world. Every family is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And then what happens? God actually gives Abraham and his barren wife a child. Miraculous. A miraculous conception. And then that child, Isaac, has a child. has multiple children, but has one child, Jacob. That child, Jacob, is a scoundrel, a deceiver, a liar. But God was pleased to work through him to bring about the 12 children of Israel, who then became the 12 tribes of Israel. What God did then was that because he had made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land and a people, he fulfilled it in one sense. He brought the people out of slavery in the land of Egypt, and then they went Eventually, they made their way over to the promised land. You ever use that, that term promised land? For me, growing up, it was always Game 7 of the World Series. Angels are winning it. I went to my promised land, believe it or not. I was there. <laughs> Pretty spectacular, won't lie. That was my promised land. God's promised land is it's, it's a land where I rule, where I'm king, where I am Lord. The whole world is covered with all of these different lands and all these other gods. And it's darkness out there. But here, light, life, love. This is your land and I am your God. And so God fulfills those promises. And then the people, he gives the people the law. I'm, 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 I'm condensing a lot into a short amount of time. But he gives the people kind of like their law. This is, this is what it looks like to relate to me as my people. What did the people say when God gave them all the commands? Does anybody remember We'll do it. Have you ever read that? It's amazing. It's like, yeah. They don't do it. They don't. They didn't. It's a bit like me. Like, I'll follow you, Jesus. No, I won't. It was like that for them. Here's the problem. And this is really important. I'm, I'm, I'm taking time to explain this before we talk about the inheritance. Because if you don't get what I'm about to say, nothing in the Bible will make sense to you. Christianity will just be a set of rules. A bunch of stuff that you just need to do. So tune in, tune in, okay? What was the problem with the people of Israel ultimately? Their same problem that every human being has, including you and me. Our hearts. Our hearts. They don't work like they should. We were created by whom? Just, let's just assume a biblical worldview, which you don't have to assume right now, but let's just assume the Bible is true. Who made us? Who do we belong to? Yeah. To whom do we owe our allegiance? Yeah. Who gets to set the terms of what this is like? The creator. But our hearts don't work the way they should. 
Instead, what do you see in the, in the story of Israel constantly? God coming to the rescue, doing incredible things, being gracious, rescuing them, and the people are like, yeah! And then things get hard, and what do they do? Grumble, complain, which ultimately is an expression of what? Rebellion in the heart. A rejection of God as father and as God as king. I love that definition. I don't remember who came up with it, but they rejected God as father and as king. They said no to him. Where did they end up? Exile. Away from the land, away from, from that place that was supposed to be marked by God and his people. The place that was supposed to be like, this is God's land, we are his people, come. Come, nations, come in. The promises made to Abraham were supposed to be fulfilled in part through the people. The people were supposed to be a testimony to the nations of like, our God is good, he is great, he is gracious. Come in and know him. But instead, they rebelled and they ended up in exile. Like me. I walked away. And I was walking, wandering in a foreign land with foreign gods. Into a spiritual exile. That's the backstory that you have to understand in order to really understand what the inheritance is. You have to understand that. And the problem is human hearts don't work the way they should. They are broken and sinful. And by they, I need to say we, all of us, every single person that's, that, that's hearing my voice right now, this is us. So what happened? Israel failed, humanity failed. So what did God do? What did he come to do? He sent his son. He sent Jesus. God sent his son, a, de- a descendant of Abraham, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus himself was the only person who's ever perfectly embraced the agenda of God for their life. He set aside all of his rights, all of his privileges, all of his power to become like us, with one key exception, no sin. No sin. And what did it get him? What, was the, what, was, what did it wind up for him? What ended up happening? He went to a cross. And before he went to the cross, this is one of the most famous stories, I think, in the whole Bible. Jesus is in agony because he knows he's going to die on the cross. If you don't know what, what crucifixion is like, just think about like the worst pain, both psychological and physical pain you could ever be in. Um, I think of it sometimes like, this is, whatever, it's really morbid, but I think it, it can help paint a picture. If you've ever seen one of the, one of the old movies where they, they send people to the electric chair, imagine being on an electric chair, but it just doesn't work, and it's just like dragged out for a really, really long time. It's like that kind of a death. So obviously, Jesus is like, let, can, we, can, we figure, can we let this pass? This is horrendous. What does he say, though? He asks, can can this cup pass from me? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had no agenda but God's. That's our salvation and our hope. So in his his death, and we just sang about this. I love the, the song selection today. We just sang about this this morning. Death was defeated. Sin was disarmed. And now he offers forgiveness and renewal for anyone who accepts his, his sacrifice on their behalf. On, his, on their behalf, yeah. God's agenda was Jesus' agenda. 
And here's the big thing that I, before I kind of unpack the, finally the inheritance piece, the Beatitudes, what we're talking about, it presupposes one very important thing, that the disciples have been cleansed and are being made new. A humble person is someone who's cleansed and being made new. It presupposes it. You can't have humility with hearts that don't work apart from forgiveness and renewal, which is something that Jesus gives. He offers it to you today and to me. He offers it to us every single day. So it's really important to ask the question, have you been cleansed? Have you been cleansed? Is, are you someone who's being made new? In principle, in public, and in private. Are you someone who's being made new? If not, I have good news for you. That's why Jesus died. For you. For me. For us. He died to cleanse us, to wash us, to make us a new people. In principle, in public, and in private. That was his, that's, that's the whole deal. And there's something beautiful here. Pastorally speaking, I think that it's important to acknowledge something. Psalm 37, 11, in which this humble person has been sketched out. It's people who trust God and surrender, submit to his authority, even when they can't make sense of it or their circumstances. Even when they can't make sense of their circumstances. So there's a few things, I think, um, this, this inheritance is for those who have been cleansed and made new and for those who today are following Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense. I hope that's an encouragement to you because I know that many of you have followed Jesus even when it didn't make sense. And what it's cost you is you've, been, you've experienced really hard things. You've experienced even, to some degree, maybe persecution. You've experienced rejection. You've experienced loss. You've experienced the loss of respect from other people. You've been subjected to terrible things said about you that weren't true. I just want you to know that Jesus' words here mean for you blessing. Happy are you. Which is pretty shocking if you stop and think about it. But you are on the right path. You're on the path to life. So the inheritance is for those who have been cleansed and who are being made new. And the inheritance, I'm going to read a quick quote and then define it. Inherit the land in the Old Testament refers to inheriting the promised land of Canaan. We talked about the land of Canaan right before. That was the promise that, that God made to Abraham. Thus, most of Jesus' hearers recognized that his disciples were a new Israel that would inherit the land promised to Abraham. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, inheriting the earth involves more than the Middle East. It refers to living in a recreated earth over which Christ rules eternally. That's where this thing is going. It's not going to like just you and I could just buzz off into, into like a forever uh, disconnected, disembodied existence. That's not the point. It's living in a recreated earth over which Christ rules eternally. Matthew 19.28 anticipates the renewal of earth and assures Jesus' disciples that they will enjoy a great reward in the eternal kingdom. So what's the inheritance? The inheritance of the humble is life with God and life with God in the renewed earth. Life with God and a renewed earth.
Does that make anybody excited? It's okay to be excited. Pull my pants up. It's okay to be excited. This is a good thing. It's like all of the things that we've ever longed for and desired are going to be ours as we experience life in a renewed earth with God. And we get to taste, taste some of that today. We're not going to fully have it, have it until then. And here's, this is really good news in my opinion. This is another quote from N.T. Wright. People often say what wonderful teaching the Sermon on the Mount is, which, by the way, we just read parts of it. What's in the Sermon on the Mount? Persecution, mourning, uh, you're going to be treated like crap. What wonderful teaching! Wonderful teaching the Sermon on the Mount is, and that if only people would obey it, the world would be a better place. You've probably heard this before. It often gets thrown around by politicians. Um, Man, we're Sermon on the Mount. But if we think of Jesus simply sitting there telling people how to behave properly, we will miss what's really going on. These blessings, he's saying blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This wonderful news that he's announcing are not saying, he's not saying try hard to live like this. He's saying that people who already are like that are in good shape. They should be happy and celebrate. We could do a little dance. If you're the kind of person who's broken by life, if you're the kind of person who has consistently set, set apart your agenda in public, in private, and in principle, and it's gotten you, you've paid dearly for it, financially, with respect to your relationships, do a little dance. It's totally appropriate. It's a good thing. You should be happy and celebrate. And part of my um, kind of pastoral application here is very simple. And I love this. For us who are disciples of Jesus, we have to remember a few things. Number one, hard times are coming, hard times are here, hard times are ahead until Christ returns. But number two, if you're still like he's, he's blessed you in the midst of it. How does that blessing work? The spiritually afflicted, okay, humble people in whom life's trials have done their proper work and brought about humility and have learned to depend on God, he comforts you in the midst of it. The whole Beatitudes, it's one thing. I know Andrew talked last week um, beautifully on mourning. These are all connected. God loves to comfort people who have set aside their agenda and have paid the price to follow him. That's for you today. So really it's two things. Number one, some of you, maybe you have not yet experienced the cleansing power of Jesus in your life and experiences renewal. If you want that, that's for you. That's for everybody. How do you actually demonstrate that? You start with baptism. So for some of you, this is an invitation to actually grapple with baptism. If you haven't been baptized yet, it might be time to actually have that conversation, to include other people into it, and to begin to pray through, like, man, what would keep me from actually being baptized? So that's the first thing. The cleansing power of the gospel is for you. And the second thing is that the comfort and the love of God is for suffering, humble saints. You will inherit the land. Do a dance. It's cool to be happy. It's okay to be excited. It's okay to enjoy life. I'm going to call the band up.
I want to close with this quickly. I want to close the loop on my story. So when I was uh, 23, after about five years of grappling with this call on my life, God's agenda for me, I had an epiphany. I had a revelation. I was sitting uh, in San Diego. I was living in Mission Valley at the time, just off Friars Road, if you guys know where that kind of area is, across the street from Fashion Valley Mall over there. I went to school in San Diego. I stayed in the area. I lived close to my college campus. I'm sitting there in my room, and I'm, I'm in torment internally because I'm like, dude, I, I have... I have given God like a stiff arm and said no to him over and over again. Can he take me back? Can he possibly accept me? And it was that day, it was June of 2008, where all of, this, all of the messages, all of the preaching, all the relationships, all the conversations, it all culminated on this one thing. I had like a vision of the cross. And the one idea that changed my life was that that was for me. That was for me. Not just for me, but that was for me. And it's changed my life. And God is, he's, he's been building that in me ever since. And I want to leave you with this idea that you and I will, will never be the kind of people who set aside our agenda to embrace God's if we don't see and understand and receive that he set aside his agenda serve us, to save us. So today, for everybody, whether you're a disciple or not, what I long for for you, what I pray for for you, is that you would experience Jesus pursuing, cleansing, washing, wooing, loving, comforting, blessing you, and inviting you to experience eternal life that starts now and will be culminated in the age to come when we receive our inheritance. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you that you gave your life for us, that you sent your son to give his life for us. And thank you that he set aside everything to obey you. I've come to do your will, O oh God, was the heartbeat of the Messiah. And I thank you that now, even though we're broken, people prone to all sorts of sin, that the very heart of the Messiah, the spirit of the Messiah lives in us. And every day he beckons us to follow him. I pray that we would be the kind of people who do follow him. The kind of people who take God's agenda seriously to go and make disciples. To grow as disciples and make disciples. Would you make us the kind of people who are about that because we've been cleansed. And our lives, would they be an overflow in private, in public, and in principle all together holistically working into a beautiful new life that we could never purchase for ourselves, that we could never secure for ourselves, and that you've given us as a gift. We love you. We thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Outstanding. Uh, will you guys stand if you're able? we got about 10 minutes left. Full morning, but I feel like there's one thing for us. Hey, Sammy, will you put that uh, the definition of humility back up again? I think this was fire, Eric. Just put this in front. I just want this in your brains, guys, because I think it's really helpful, okay? 
You still have it? There we go. No, not that one. The, the actual one. Setting aside their agenda for God's agenda. That one. There we go. Thanks, Sam. The humble set aside their agenda to pursue God's. And they're, and they're blessed. That word blessed, again, it means like, it means transcendently happy. <clears throat> we weren't created to be the kings of our own life. Here's what I feel like God's highlighting for every single one of us. I think he wants us to experience a deep, profound freedom from carrying the weight of our agenda constantly. So for the last 10 minutes, uh, Ben, will you guys just minister to us? I want to invite you you personally right now, almost like typically we try to like one voice come together and respond. I feel like it's different this morning. I feel like it's you. Just you and the Lord and allow him to lead you, allow him to guide you, allow him to develop humility in you specifically by highlighting areas in your life where you're pursuing your agenda and it is weighing you down. You know, you know you're pursuing your agenda that's like unhealthy for you when it's just stress and anxiety and depression and all these un, ungodly kingdom type things. That's not the way God's kingdom operates. Blessed are the humble. Transcendently happy are the ones who set aside their agenda for God's agenda. I want to invite you now to engage with the spirit of God as a beloved child to identify what the, what that might be for you so that you can punt that thing as far away as possible and experience the goodness of the rule and the reign of God in your life right now. Sound good? He'll shepherd you as a shepherd. And sometimes those instructions make you giggle and they give you a little bit of like, really, Lord? Um, And I just had one of those moments. I'm going to share it with you. (laughs) So bear with me. We're almost done, okay? This idea of setting aside our agenda for God's agenda it's a really big deal, man. It's a really big deal. Uh, I'd be willing to bet you're just like me. You cannot get through an entire day without running back to your agenda. There's all sorts of, you know, internal things going on at a heart level, at a spiritual level, um, that make that a reality. And I felt like God asked me a question for us. Like he said, for our, even our gatherings. One of the things that we, we, we diligently seek is, God, what's your agenda for our time when we're gathered? Like for, from a preach to, the, I mean, the band works really hard. Um, what are the songs? Like, God, what do you desire? What's your agenda? It's always for our good. It's always for our deliverance from sin and death and destruction and pain even. And I feel like he asked me about our gathering. He said, what if, what if my people, 
It's you, it's me. What if my people set aside their agenda for Sunday mornings in favor of my agenda for Sunday mornings? What would that look like? And I feel like it's God planting a seed in us that over time will come to fruition that will result in a humble people, humble individuals, right? Obviously, because we're setting aside our agenda for God's. But man, a free people that weight off their shoulders, the weight of bearing your agenda constantly. Freedom from that. I'm gonna pray over that over us because I think it's I think it's really big for many of us in the room, and I think it's like a looking at the long game thing. It's like fruit that takes a long time to get ripe on the vine, not an overnight next week thing. So let me pray over that because I think it's big. And we'll get out of here. Father, I see you and sense you working in our hearts and in our minds. I thank you for the ways that you use every single one of us to contribute this morning. It makes me really excited. We're a body, many members working together for the health of the body, for the glory of God, and for the good of our city, our region, our valley. Our prayer for every every heart that's uh, kind of united in this space in this moment, I know that there might be some that have drifted and that's fine, but for every heart that is kind of united in this moment, in this space, we ask you to make us humble people. Give us a vision for the glory that awaits us. Give us a vision for what's to come so that setting aside our agenda in favor of yours, it makes perfect sense. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory, now and forever. So would you help us to consistently ask ourselves this question? God, what's your agenda and how can we be a part of it? What areas of my life would it benefit me to set aside my agenda in favor of yours. And God, give us a vision, give us a revelation of Jesus, the lover of our soul, who humbled himself, who became a servant to serve our greatest needs so that we would be included in his eternal family forever, his kingdom. Lord, we love you and we're grateful for this morning. What a special morning. Thank you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, guys, second Sunday lunch. We're gonna tear down. So if you could help us do that, then we'll make our way to Vail if you can join us. Anything else I'm forgetting? Probably get your kids. We got a little bit late this morning, but so grateful. Love you dearly. Oh, one more thing. Uh, really quickly. Uh, you guys can settle. Just give me your attention. Uh, Heidi, Lisa, come here really quick. We feel like there's one more thing that God has for us this morning, okay? I just don't want anybody to miss out, okay? Yeah, Heidi and I have both uh, had the impression today that God had some physical healing that he'd like us to ask for. So um, it feels specifically perhaps like upper back shoulders um, and kind of prompted with the word, like, is there something that you've stopped asking for healing from? So we just wanted to, if it's something new, if it's something that's reoccurring, we'd love to pray for you. Thank you. So if you're experiencing pain in your like kind of upper back, or if there's uh, an area that you've kind of stopped asking God to make well, um, 
these women and, and a team, they pray for our church constantly. And they felt like God highlighted that this morning. So if that's you, they're going to be out of here. Go let them pray for you, okay? See if God doesn't bring more of his kingdom in your body. All right? Love you guys very much. Grab your kiddos. Second Sunday lunch. Help us tear down. God bless you.